Welcome back, you beautiful bastards, to another week. This week we have a great guest. Our guest this week is Aaron Young. Aaron, he's a traveled man. Uh, yeah, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> Dude's been and experience. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's really hard to sum him up. He's he's the globe trotter. More like the I don't know what hemisphere is that. Southern Hemisphere. Southeastern. <laughs> Southeastern Hemisphere. Okay. So, yeah, he was back and forth between Asia, Africa, Australia. He's Australian, uh, but he's a hell of a back guy. To, uh, back to Africa, back to Australia, then to Madagascar. <laughs> yeah. He's, so he's, he's been all over the place doing all kinds of things. And But really, the dude he, has a story that you don't want to miss. <laughs> no. He is, it's... it's I couldn't even make this up. It's no. a wild ride for this guy. And it's really, it's not even over. He's kind of in the middle of it now. Yeah. It, it, listen, there's more to come. I mean, I am, and I have no issue bringing him back on the show to Hell finish yeah. it up. <laughs> yeah. Once he makes uh, his next move, which I'm sure will be just as exciting, <laughs> he can come back and we'll talk to him more because, uh, like we said, it's a hell of a story. And really, there's no way to sum this up. You just got to listen. So let's yeah. go talk to him. If I, I, I'm a good communicator. The problem is it's sometimes too good yeah. because I, I'm leading it off into something else when I could do, we could do a podcast purely just on prison. You know, yeah, yeah. I'll talk about it for seven seconds and then move on to the next thing. And people will be like, dude, you went to prison twice in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and you need like seven seconds. And I'm like, I just, I don't know. It's just the way my mind, it's a, it's a benefit because it's allowed me to see the positive. Excuse me. I'm putting a pair of socks on. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, but this is why I need good hosts. Oh yeah, you know, oh yeah. Put myself out there, and, and like I said, there is no off limits. Nothing is not. You can touch whatever. You, you, something in there on that bio you want to go into, go into it. Oh, I'm awesome. good at that, anyways. I I constantly put my foot in my mouth. Yeah, good. It, yeah. It's, it's not a bad thing. We, we the ego tells us it's a bad thing. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. Well, we've gotten What's real comfortable with uh, saying some stupid shit, you know. Oh, yeah. You're good, and we should, because the truth is what's happened is it's stupid shit is sincere. Yeah. yeah. It's who we are. When we don't say stupid shit, what's happening is the mind is basically controlling everything that comes out of our mouths. Yeah. Yep. That's bullshit. We don't want that. That's not real. No, that's, that's actually one of the big things with the show is we just, with very few exceptions, we don't really filter anything, you know? Yeah, good. It's the best way, guys. It's real, because then other people can relate to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's I think the biggest we cut out is pauses. Like we've yeah, had some guests on where it's like me- five, <laughs> you won't get six many of those with me. You won't get many of those with me. If anything, you'll be telling me to pause. Now, the, the only, <laughs> Can you pause for a second? The only real pauses that we run into with editing is when uh, Grizz here stops in the middle of a sentence and picks up oh, yeah. 10 seconds later. My brain will shut down. That, I'm better with that now. In the beginning, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to go off of this tangent and have a point, and then I'll forget what my point was. I used to be the same, <laughs> I, especially when someone was asking me a question, and what would happen is my brain would want to get clever. Mm-hmm. So I'd be talking quite comfortably, and all of a sudden, they'd be like, the brain would go, there's something you need to remember. <laughs> you need to say that. And then you'd be like, but fuck, man, I was on that tangent. Yeah. Why do I need to stop? And so what you've done is you've shut me down, yep. and now I completely lost it. It will complete. Yep. And then you get embarrassed, and then the embarrassment creates a sense of, oh, guilt, and then and that's it. Oh, I, just, I don't have over. the embarrassment of the guilt. It's just, good. <laughs> where'd my brain go? <laughs> yeah, best thing you can do in that situation is breathe. So how many, yes. uh, how many, how long have you been doing the podcast, uh, circuit? Oh, shit, not long. I know. 
four, three months, four months, three, four months. Yeah, a yeah. local mate of mine, he's got a dad's podcast. He said, let's do one. And then I did it. And, you know, public speaking is not my comfort zone, eh? Even mm, it's not I'm, for most I can people. Talk, yeah. No, I can talk and there's a story, but I'm, I'm not, I, I'm comfortable now. But man, when I first started training as a coach, they asked you to do an introductory live into a Facebook group, which just had 20 people in it. Yeah. It took me about 10 days, and the day I actually recorded it, three hours of sweating bullets just to say, hi, my name's Aaron. <laughs> story. Like, that's how bad I was. And yeah. So I just find, and this is what I teach people, that's a resistance. And whenever there's resistance in your life, push into it. And so yeah. this is what this became, this podcast, was practice. Mm-hmm. The whole adage, the cliche, practice makes perfect. It doesn't make perfect. It does, yeah. You can't fail if you keep practicing. Well, actually, I, I brought this up, I don't remember how many episodes ago, but it was fairly recent about uh, the whole public speaking or really just whatever you're working on thing. I think it was the Hollywood episode, Chris. Uh, yeah. How I am at this stage in what we're doing and in my life, I'm way more comfortable talking to strangers and crowds than I am doing this with my own family. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I want people to listen to my show, but not my family. I don't want them to listen to it. I don't want them to have anything to do with it. I don't want my family either. I don't, I don't mind deal, my immediate family, but yeah. It, and that says a lot, doesn't it? Like, yeah. That tells you a lot about yourself. Like, and it does. And you look back in your childhood or wherever it happened that you realize that you did kept that separate. Because I think I'm the same. Like, I can go down onto the beach and I can talk to a bunch of guys and I've never met before. Yeah. Which I never thought I could do. And it's easy. Mm-hmm. And I have moments where I'm like, wow, man, that's pretty wise. Where did that come from? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm quite proud of myself. But yeah, exactly. You put me in a group of people I know. And that's probably the only time you'll see me reach for a beer. Yeah. It's because that's when I will have social anxiety, weirdly enough. But yet I can do it in a group of strangers. I can walk into a hall with 30 people, don't know. Talk. Yeah, it's weird. I'm not sure what it is. It's it's, weird. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's something to do with the fact that I'll have to see my family again. And if I <laughs> look like a dumbass, yeah. then they're going to remind me. But if I talk yeah. to strangers, you know, I can stumble through a mistake and just pretend it didn't happen. No problem. You know, they're not yeah, going to remind me. We also care what they think. Yeah. We care what family thinks. Yeah, it really that's true. Is. And that's the ego saying, I don't, I don't want to feel silly or I don't want to feel. And, and it is. It's embracing our silly side. Yeah, man, nobody likes to be judged. No, and that's what it is. You're putting yourself out there. It's pure vulnerability. And they may not like it. Here's the other thing is that they may not like it. (laughs) And then what we've got to learn to do is go, what don't you like? Yeah. And actually take that on as there's how many people in the world? Eight billion perspectives in the world. Mm -hmm. And there's just no way that we're going to please all eight billion or even all eight. I take it usually, for me, it's always I have like a story about them that they probably don't want out there, but it's getting Mm. out there now. (laughs) That that would be the other side of the Mm. coin. And I think about that often, you know, like I don't touch too much. I touch a little bit of my mother, a little bit on my ex, but not too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm very cautious because their perspective of the thing that I live through can be very different, especially when you present into an audience. Now, it's closed doors. They'll say that was what happened. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you're talking like this, people will go, no, 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 no. That's not how it happened. You're milking that for, uh, you know, so you do have to be cautious and also compassionate for the fact that they didn't see it like you and also that they may feel embarrassed for what comes up. Yeah, because a lot of these conversations can get pretty raw, you know. So especially in a situation like your past is pretty colored. Uh, I'd imagine your mom doesn't necessarily enjoy the way you talk about certain situations, right? She does. We don't talk still. I, mm. I make an attempt once a year 
to yep. rebuild the bridge. Um, and it just ain't the, the bridge ain't been built. She she still holds on to the fact that um, she's got three evil children. Okay. Um, there's three of us, uh, three different dads. She holds on to that, that we're bad kids mm-hmm. and that she did the best she could. And the truth is she did. And I've told her that. I, I can accept now fully that my mother did the best she could. Now, there was some pretty wild and gnarly shit in there, which was wrong, but she probably, and she won't admit to it, was exposed to way worse when she was a child. Yeah. So she was only repeating the mistakes that were put on her. Mm. In her perspective, again, was that she's done everything she can, and that's Mm. her safety place. And I can't bridge that with her. She just doesn't want to seem to come forward and and do any more healing or sort of help herself. She's a hermit. She doesn't talk to people. She, you know, she she likes it like that. Well, Mm. it's hard to it's hard to come back from a lot of that for most people, you know. Yeah, it is. Like for, for, for me, I mean, sometimes people will say, how do you sit there and speak positively about it? And I don't know. Though I, I can tell you I do. It's work. Mm-hmm. You do conscious work. You spend a lot, a lot of time exploring your soul, to, so to speak, you know, your soul, yeah. your essence, whatever, and working out what drives you. Yeah, well, you know what's and being what's, honest. What's interesting about that is I actually have uh, – so my childhood wasn't exactly, uh, you know, like a standard American childhood. It was – it was pretty chaotic, a rough ride. And I have, uh, I have forgiven the past, you know, I just move on from it at this point because I have decided at this stage in my life, being angry about things like that is not a benefit. And what was really interesting was it was last year sometime. Uh, my mother actually apologized for what she considered not being a good mother which was it totally caught me off guard. I didn't even know what to say about that. I was just like, well, you know, it's not a big <laughs> yeah, deal done, now, I guess. Now. Uh, thanks for letting me know you thought about it. It was, yeah, I, I didn't, the, even, the, I was totally unprepared. The truth is you still would be, I thought the same thing when I was in my thirties, I did exactly the same thing as you. Yeah. I forgave her and she actually had her moment of complete and utter breakdown and apology. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, is forgiveness in a situation with a parent or a close family member or someone close to you in your life is actually like a muscle. Yeah. You've occasionally got to revisit it mm. because the memory still lingers. That is the, the the downfall of the human mind is it never totally frees or lets go of something. No. You know, they'll say in hypnosis they do, but what happens in hypnosis is they put a layer on top of it. So they stick a bandage on it so you can't see it anymore. Mm-hmm. But subconsciously, you can't erase stuff, okay? It is not a possibility. Not. It just cannot be done. So anyone tells you the can is full of shit. Mm. You have to go into it and understand it and go, this is a part of me that I need to accept occasionally will show its face. And when it shows its face, I know that my reaction in the conscious world is to take a day to myself, cry, scream at the world, run, swim, whatever is your thing to acknowledge that and then actually at the end of that day or that hour or however long you need is to actually go back and revisit the forgiveness and actually forgive that person again and also ask them for forgiveness because chances are even though your mum was probably wrong, she saw that you did things wrong. Mm, Definitely. Mm. And and so you ask for that. So giving that two-way sort of opening revisits the forgiveness like a muscle, like going to the gym. And, and and calms it, soothes it again until it pops up again. Someone triggers you or, you know. Well, I'm sure at this point in our conversation, people are wondering what happened with you <laughs> and your mom. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> um, okay, so it started early. Look, mum's an addict. And I'll okay. say is. She may not abuse uh, substances the way she used to, but an addiction is not about a substance. It's about using anything outside yourself to seek 
uh, joy fulfillment, mm-hmm. or even to just numb the feelings so they don't exist. So you can stop taking substances and you can run every day. You're still an addict. Hmm. You just use yeah, it. You just changed your addict. To feed your, yeah, you've just changed it. And it's healthy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't run, go back to heroin. No, but be aware that the addiction still persists. It's just got a new face. That's all. So she's an addict. Um, she was a stripper. She's in the 70s, you know. She grew up around ACDC, Black Sabbath, heavy metal rock bands that used to tour Sydney. Um, and I grew up around that lifestyle. So a lot of bars and pubs as a young kid. Really kind of cool now I look back at it, but not cool as a little kid. Mm-hmm. A, lot of drug, a lot of drugs, a lot of seeing, a lot of sex, a lot of just really weird shit. Um, and mum was way too young. So in her words, one day I wouldn't stop crying. She couldn't handle the crying, so she shook me to the point where she thought she'd kill me. She threw mm. me on a bed and she legged it, and she came back three days later. So that's my first memory is not the shaking experience but the waking up and knowing she was gone, being old enough at sort of four to walk around this little tiny one-bedroom, one-sit, so it's just one room, and looking at the window and being hungry, mm. hungry, hungry, hungry. And to this day it still surfaces where you put certain foods in front of me, man, and you want to see a dude that weighs yeah, – I'm thin – I'll polish your food like you wouldn't believe. And that's that subconscious memory guiding my life still. You've got to eat. You've got to eat quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that was the first part. And then sadly, she just brought me up in an environment for those first five or six years that was just chaos. You know, I was abducted by a, a kid who lived around the corner when I was five. So he tried to molest me. Sadly, he picked on the wrong kid and I fought. So the molestation didn't take uh, place. But what happened in its place was equally as bad, I think. And that mm-hmm. was being told for a whole day that someone's going to kill you. And then if you tell anyone what happened, he will kill your family. Mm. Right. And so I didn't tell anyone. And how old did you say you were then? Five. Okay. You were yeah, fucked up first five years, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the sad reality is that is I didn't tell anyone, including myself, fully until I was 40. So that thing drove the bus for a long fucking time like that fear and that hyper vigilance of every human around me and what their intention was and was this guy going to pop up you can imagine the first seven years of life for a for a child are feeling years they don't have an established mind yet mm-hmm. yeah we think so we're talking and we're thinking and this is all up here children don't live there so when you expose a young child to constant fear and terror they then see the entire world with fear and terror. How did you? So what happens? You can't. You can't survive. So you adapt. Mm-hmm. Turn fear into anger, as all most young men do. You know, I'm not scared. I'm not scared. I'm not scared. I wasn't scared until I was again forty. <laughs> Put me up to forty. You've seen this other shit in my bio. The stuff I did to prove I wasn't scared. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I took it to extreme lengths. So how did you deal with it at forty? Like how did you come um, to terms with I, it? I basically, I had a moment, I was farming and this is part of the prison story and I had gun, I was death threats constantly, you know, I was in Zimbabwe, I'm a white guy farming in a, in a country that in early 2000 killed almost every white farmer it could get its hands on and the rest who weren't killed fled. And I decided to go and take my crusader mentality back to farming because Zimbabwe was changing and I was having guns pointed at me again and again and again. So what happened was my not drinking because I don't drink a lot stance started to falter i started to drink um, one day i had a full-on platoon of guys pitch up and point guns at me I, I went home to see the mother of my kids at the time and i was breaking but i was keeping the facade on i'm all good i'm strong and i wasn't i went and bought two grams of cocaine went absolutely ape shit for two days abandoned the farm and hid i lost it I had what you would consider probably a nervous break mm, yeah that led to me going 
I'm not doing this. My daughter was only two at the time. Now, I wasn't an habitual user of any at this point. That had been in my 20s. But I wasn't going to, no, that's not the way I'm going to father, not from where I came from. Even though that was only a blip, that blip was enough to scare the living shit out of me and make me realise that my life had to ultimately change. And someone said to me, write your life story. That was a course. I went into a CBT course. I said, write your life story. Page one. Oh, born, blah, blah, blah. I was, and then it all flooded through. I literally fell off this chair and turned into a five-year-old and mm. just all came pouring out. It was like, holy shit. And then I had all these mental flashbacks in my life where I was having dreams and I was seeing these moments guide me and I ignored them because I, the kid was still going to kill me. I was still feeling that five-year-old moment again and again and again because my conscious mind, the adult part, couldn't rationalise it. That's it's crazy. Like, it's like putting a scar in someone or, or tattooing them. You know, at that age, yeah. but they can't see the tattoo. You know, yeah. and freak man, in it, yeah, <laughs> it was a hell yeah. Of a you were ride. just going on the defensive for thirty-five <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah, and proving I wasn't scared was the. You know, I'm not terrified. I'm not terrified. How do you prove that? Go and you know track and and protect wild elephants and go and become a lion specialist and you know and and take on African politics alone. You know, like just. <laughs> You know. So is that what made you go over to Africa was basically the, the like just you had to prove to yourself that you weren't scared? Um, no, what my 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 main addiction was codependency was women, mm -hmm. but I didn't know it. All right. So I was addicted to trying to fix broken women. Mm. Sort of self-explanatory, really, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but I didn't know it. I didn't know it. And this, it's self-explanatory now, but back then I didn't know it. So I met a woman in the Middle East. I was in the Middle East at the time. I met a woman and the financial bubble burst over there and she got deported instantly because she was on African passport. I wasn't. I was on Australian passport. I was about to do the first uh, Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. The inaugural would have set me up the rest of my life if I'd stayed, but I'd fell in, fallen in love. So I followed her to Africa. <laughs> and then and we lived in South Africa right next to Kruger National Park, which is probably the greatest national park in the world. And I spent every weekend there for six months. And that was where, that's where the fear came up and this bush barefoot tracking wild animals in Africa, you know, like that was the ultimate rush. Fuck jumping out of airplanes. Or anything. <laughs> you know, I was face to face. And it, and it was because for me, I got a very strong connection to animals and to mother nature. I was getting this just massive feeding of everything I needed. Adrenaline, challenge, um, you know, overcoming, it was just all there, perfect. And I was connected to animals, you know, which is for me was one of my soul foods. Mm. Yeah, I love animals too. I actually, I just adopted a dog when I just told my wife that we weren't getting anymore just because <laughs> I met him and I love animals. So I took him home. They're good. And, they're, and then they're our, they're our brothers and sisters without sounding too stupid or too hippie. We, we don't realize that we are part of mother nature, whether we want to be or not. And whether we live in nice big houses and apartment blocks and we've got concrete under us, we're a part of this system. Yeah. That's just the reality of the world. Whether we like it, we are part of it. Yeah. I was actually and just telling my wife earlier today, actually, when we were, we were on a drive somewhere and I was talking to her about, I don't even remember what the situation was, but I got on this topic too about people forget that we're part of nature and, you know, they, they don't realize that, you know, the, the way that we're behaving and the, the situation we're in, in America specifically, people forget that we're part of the animal kingdom. We, we act like we're something special. We're just, we just happen to be smarter and better at making things. 
We're that's still right. animals. That's, that's the only difference. And But we've lost our innate abilities. You know, and I can tell you that as a white guy who never spent any time in Africa, landing in Africa and getting into the bush, finding that I had a natural affinity to track elephants mm-hmm. was quite an eye-opener. Where the hell did I get that from? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, not train me. I don't have any schooling. I mean, I'd seen zoos and I'd seen plenty of animals and I'd loved them my entire life, but never did I think that I would have this, I could out-track a, an African. I had nicknames, you know, they'd give me nicknames and just, or like they thought I was using juju or, yeah. you know, which, which, you know, black magic or witch doctor connections or I'd had some, what they call a nunga in Zimbabwe, which is a witch doctor or someone who'd put a special power in me. Yeah. Yeah. And it, what the truth was is because of my early childhood experiences, I believe my perspective was blown wide open. And so what happens is I connect in a different way very openly to things like mother nature very easily. Um, and that's why I say I can talk about mum and be grateful. You know, I'm very lucky. I realized that what my, what my gift was, but, and then lions was another one you know, and leopard. I could find leopard. People go to Kruger Park for five years to find a leopard, you know, man, I'd spike, I'd see two in a day. I just got this thing. But now was it that you actually finding them or just having the luck of it? Uh, I don't know. Look, it depends. In the early days, it was finding them. It was, I think, pure luck. Well, luck or maybe something guiding me. But when I was working with them, there was a skill to it. It was just literally this form of meditation, you know, that I literally would switch off all connection as a human and, and almost you could say accidentally don't think there's no spirit. I'm not going to say that there's any magical words I say, but I become an animal to a certain degree. My sense of smell would go through the roof. Like I can't tell you how I could smell buffalo from four or five kilometers away. And in and, and hunting buffalo, you need to do that because they'll kill you. They're dangerous as. And and with elephant, I can't, guys, I, I wish I could t- understand it. It was literally just this ability for days where we'd be tracking and tracking elephant and I would find a thing. And I'd be saying on this line, there is, on this line, there is day three, bang. And <laughs> it comes straight where I'd sit. And that would happen time and time again. And I, I don't know. It was just, I switch off part of me and switch on something else i wonder if it's just uh that reconnecting with uh the primitive uh the, yeah. the cave person type thing you know going back to being part of nature instead of separate from it i, I think so that that's my explanation is it probably is it's just as simple as that is whether we like it or not the caveman's inside all of us yeah still there i've also come across guys in my life who think differently than anyone else around them. So they see the things that no one else sees, but they can't see yeah. the things that everyone else sees. It's just it's, a di- different you know way of what? looking. Yeah, it's a perspective and you're very right. It is as simple as that. Sometimes, some, you know, there'd be a scientist here who would give them a 40-page explanation of why, and it really just it's just that. My life and my experiences in my early childhood just opened my eyes up to see in a different way. You know, I see miracles where people are like, what are you, t- what are you talking about? It's just a sunrise. And I'm like, man, can you hmm. know, I'm still at 47. I can see <laughs> magic in a sunrise. And then what happens is I can bleed that out to people. And after five minutes, like I have a group of men on the beach this morning starting to go, oh, fuck, I get it now. Because we look for miracles as these massive, big epiphanies, like big job, big money, big change. And if we stop and reconnect, we look around us, man, there's a miracle every freaking second. Of mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the small things. You know, it's, and it is. That's, Dude, that's if you think about it, it's insanity that we're living on this rock and we haven't found another one like it. Oh, yeah. It makes you feel real small. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So this it's got me curious because so my childhood wasn't nearly as rough as yours, but... I know, Grizz, you had a pretty normal one, you said, right? To my knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you didn't have any kind of like abandonment or abuse issues or anything like that, right? No. Now, I'm curious to know, 
if you think that our perspective is significantly different. Because for one, I don't think that you look at things the same way as other people I've met who had a like a what I would call a normal childhood. Uh, no, and I think it, it it differs. It just make what it makes me think of is I used to work with a guy who actually had a somewhat similar lifestyle to what you're saying mm-hmm. um, growing up, and his way of looking at the world. Um, this might not make sense to a lot of, of listeners, but like I was a mechanic and he was too. And he could look at something. He could order a part that went to an engine. It was built for an engine. And he'd get it and be like, this is all fucked up. And start cutting it up, welding, changing it all up, and putting it in a new place. And like, if you flipped it upside down, it would have bolted in fine. Now, (laughs) what he did worked. And it did it perfectly fine. It was just he had a different take on the world than everyone else around him. That's a beautiful way of putting it because it's, mm-hmm. it's an incredible example of exactly what yeah. why the world is so disconnected. Like that's a really simple way of explaining why we're fighting so much mm-hmm. because, you know, the six and the nine story, you stand on one side of the six, on the other side, I see. Exactly, you know I mean? exactly. Like, it's as simple as that. Yep. And if we could understand that, how much easier we could respect that the dude on the other side of the politician or the other side of the whatever it is that you want to disagree about is just another dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's just seeing through a different I, I use pair I use lens. So I say to people, you put your glasses on. Your glasses contain every memory that your subconscious mind has decided to collect along the way. And that's what you see the world through. So like when you hear Zen Buddhists and all these, these sort of mystics talk about you create your world, that's what they mean. Because that lens that you wear is now creating the world that you walk through into. Mm. Yeah. And this is what, so this, what, what I teach is taking the glasses off is that's where you try to get back to. Yeah. Is you want to have lived the things you've lived through, but you don't want them driving the bus. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, definitely. And you, you got to pick and choose the right ones, right? hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And you want to know when they come up because they don't escape. They'll always be there. But you want to know when that one comes up, is that a healthy one that I need that right now? Do I need to feel vigilant about the situation? Is it dangerous? Yeah, I do. I'm in a dark alley. There's a dude up there. You know what I mean? Or am I walking down the street and is that vigilance popping up? Do I need, no, I don't need you now. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. I need, there's a time in my life where I needed you. But I don't. So it's it's the response versus react mechanism, I call it. Learning to respond to the things that come up inside you versus reacting to them, which is, you know, if someone walks down the street, you punch the guy in the head because you thought he was going for a knife and the dude was reaching for an apple in his pocket. <laughs> an extreme example, but that's what I'm getting at. It's that it's that ability to remove that trigger. And I gotta imagine with what you were seeing as a kid, your kind of fight or flight was always on. Oh, man. You couldn't shut I it mean, off. I've got to the point now where my health actually suffering a bit. My thyroid packed it in because I was producing adrenaline for 40, 45 years. And so I got to the point where mentally I understood that at 40, but then what happened to me subsequently with that, and then now I don't have my kids still, I was waking up every single day still in that state. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't leave it. You know, as part of me was still trapped in that prison, even though I'd left it behind, my body was physically still producing massive amounts of cortisol, massive amounts of adrenaline. And then my kidneys decided to take a holiday on me as well. And again, you link all this back. And all of this was just, I lived in a constant stress for 45 years. Yep. I, there's a, I think there's a lot more people who are like you than you think. Like, oh man. And, yeah. and, and it doesn't have to be as big a story as mine. So people no. listen to my story and they disconnect and go, oh, this dude's fucking crazy. It's too big. I'm like, whoa, whoa no, it's not. It doesn't I'm have a good to be an example of the extremity. You could have watched your dog die as a five-year-old. Mm. That could give you the same traumatic reaction. You could have watched your parents fighting, never any hitting or any physical, but just you watching that fighting for, say, six months that they went through some troubles. Mm-hmm. And they may have fixed it afterwards. That six months leaves an imprint. 
Yeah, we were talking about this the other day. It just kind of comes down to the eye of the beholder. I mean, if it if it yeah. triggers you, it triggers you. It doesn't matter what Big it time. is. It didn't matter whether it's whether it's an abusive mother or whether you know your sister called you a, a, a nickname you didn't like. It, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. matter, and we don't need to judge it. And this is the other stigma that I try and break down with people is don't judge how you feel. Just let yourself feel it. Yeah, I mean, and that's a, a hard thing nowadays, especially because yeah. you have so many people coming from different points of views and. They'll see someone and be like, uh, you know, they're being now you hear sheeple or whatever because of the way they're looking at things. It's like they're not you. They didn't have your life. They don't think like you. So don't yeah, judge them for the way they're thinking. No, and and you'll and the thing, the funny thing about it is, you'll never help them or never give them an alternative perspective by judging them. Yeah, if no. we really want to change, if you really feel, if we feel that there's a need for someone to see something, the only way we'll ever teach them to see it is through compassion. And understanding, which is empathy, which, like you've just said, this dude may conform. You know what? How much easier his life is versus yours judging all the time? It'd be nice to be like him and try being like him and then understand that if you want to teach him something, be like him. Can't you be live in that place, you know? And it's like for me to be a good conservationist, I had to be a hunter. So I had to work in hunting camp, you know. I didn't choose the conservation for and go hunting. I went hunting and then went, whoa, well, this is bullshit. You know, watching animals slaughtered in the manner that I saw it and being a part of that and then filming those hunts as well, man. So was, was that a trigger for you to switch from yeah, how was, the first was, six months where you, you were tracking these animals and then you made the switch there to conservationism? No. So, yeah. So I, I ended up in Mozambique by accident. I was going for a farming job and I ended up switching across to this hunting camp because the job fell through. And, I, you know, I had respect for hunters when I got there because I was always explained to by these guys that they were part of conservation. And in the principle of it 50 years ago, when man cut up the land and broke the migration routes, there was a necessary evil in that we had to control populations because if one population explodes, others disappear. Elephants are a very good example of what happens. Now, they took it too far and they made a lot of mistakes, but the idea of your you know, great white hunter or your client hunting off the older is not a bad idea. It isn't. But the problem is there's no ethics to it anymore. So they were just killing everything. They, were, they, was, they would tell you it's ethical and you've got groups like SCI and I feel for them because they really believe it. But the truth is it's got long gone. Is that just because of the, how much money they make off it? Because I, I mean. No, human encroachment on the land. If you don't preserve land, you don't preserve any animal because no animal is safe if you can't preserve the land. And human encroachment in Africa and the population boom is out of control. So as humans want the land. There is no way an animal can survive. So the, the hunter's attitude is, I've got 20 years of this left. What else am I going to do? I better make yeah. as much goddamn money as I can because as the Africans move in, they're going to kill it. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't see the same value as you. They just don't. And that's just the sad reality. And is it right? And does it suck to see a rhino's horn hacked out and its baby removed and its, and that's, and its horn hacked out? It's freaking disgusting. But you're not an African and you're not living in, in abject poverty in a political system that basically stops you from doing anything in life. I can't feel sorry for the poacher, but I also, unless I've lived in his shoes, cannot sit there and say he's completely and utterly wrong. You know, the Chinese presence and the way they're milking that, that industry, I, that's, that's a different story, probably something for a different podcast. But, but for your average African, these guys poaching, man. I actually saw something not too long ago where they um... – They've figured out how to make like synthetic rhino horn that you wouldn't have a clue. And they're just mm. flooding the market with it to make it to where poaching a rhino is useless now. Yeah, Which, they're using that's 3D awesome. printers. Yeah, yeah, 3D printers apparently. The problem is is this this the demand is still there because what it does is create oh, the meat market. 
because you've got the wealthy Asian who basically says, no, I want the real deal, so I'll pay three times as much because he's got 50 million to sit, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it will still happen. Um, old habits die hard. Now, what were you, when you were doing the hunting thing, were, was it mostly Asians? Was it everyone? No, it was America, predominantly Americans and yeah. Germans. Yeah, I didn't never worked with any Asian clients, although they were few, quite a few about. The Chinese don't come to a professional hunter. They just go to the government. And then they go out with a game scout and shoot whatever they like. Hmm. They don't work in the same system, you know. An American or, or, or someone who considers himself a hunting client wants the experience, he wants to live in an environment, he wants to be cooked uh, Western food, whereas the Chinese guy, he just goes to a local politician and says, I'll give you a couple of thousand dollars, give me a National Parks game scout, let me go into the National Park and shoot whatever I want. Mm. Interesting. And if anyone, anyone listening to this says, oh, bullshit, no, don't. Oh, <laughs> you know, in, in places like Tanzania, it was controlled just. But and in Kenya, just but everywhere else, man, it was fair game. Yeah, and I don't care what they say. I'll go toe to toe with any professional hunter. It is an unethical trade now, and it's just I understand they're, they're panicking. So, so now, I've what got much time left? The hunting thing rolled you into the conservation stuff. Well, I left the hunting, and then I went back to Zimbabwe, and then I worked with an incredible combat tracker from the Rhodesian Bush War. He's like seventy-five, one of the last white employees of the uh, Zimbabwean government, um, and he trained me. And so what happened was I was doing game capture. I was relocating, restocking national parks, and I started to see that sort of work. Now, his attitude was he was an old racist and angry bastard. <laughs> everything. He was, he, he'd been in Africa, you know, 75 years. Yep. So he was jaded. But I started to see my potential because of my ability to communicate my logistics ability, my business experience to do something meaningful. And there was there was a story, someone contacted me and said they're shooting elephants in a place called Churundu, northern uh, Zimbabwe, border with Zambia. And I was like, bullshit, no. People were sending me pictures of these elephants that they'd taken when their kids were born. So an elephant's now 45 and 50 and they've got pictures going, Aaron, look at the ears on this. This is this elephant. They've all got names for them. And national parks were just shooting them. Oh, they're coming into town. They're causing a problem. They weren't. They were basically shooting them for political. Elephant meat is prized. You know, locals, especially in a boarding town, oh, they love it. They believe it's got strong strong power. So you eat it and you get strength from it. So they were shooting them pretty much under that guise. Problem animal control was what they called it, but it wasn't. Yeah. So, and, and then that's how. So I started that, started an organisation in about three days, and then we started creating new techniques to teach the elephants to stay away. So if the elephants don't come anywhere near a person, you can't shoot it. And if you do shoot it, you're breaking the law. Even in Zimbabwe, there was a there was a case to be had, and we were watching them. So we used chili resins, we used PVC homemade guns, and we shot ping pong balls with this resin at them. So every time they came to town, we created like an invisible barrier. So they'd enter, they'd get smacked with this on the trunk, burn like hell. It's like fifty thousand times stronger than Tabasco, and to an elephant's sensitive nose, that's like acid. And he would start going, you know what? Fuck that photog, I'm not going there anymore. <laughs> I'm not going so to we that just corner. Reinforce, reinforce, reinforce. Yeah. And and we kept it up. And so it started working really well. Sadly, politics got involved. It's it's still there and still going, but not the way it should have. Um, but the, the beautiful side is those tools then filtered out to other parts of Africa and being used in parks all over. Um, there was, you know, trials I'd done with beehives. Uh, elephants hate bees. Don't ask me why. I can, we can only assume not having any evidence, it's not anecdotal, is that bees, when hives are disturbed, sting trunk, their trunks, the tips, and it's an incredibly sensitive part. So I was wanting to trial the noises of an angry beehive and put just little cheap, shitty speakers around the main areas of town and to play this sound, which hardly would be heard by the human ear. 
That's yeah, cool. That was the things like that. Yeah, and that that's that's was that. And then I ran teams of vets. We were doing anti-poaching. So if an elephant got caught in a snare, he'd have this huge chunk of wire and a stump wrapped around his leg, and we'd go out and you know knock him out, surge operate in the field, remove it. You know, there's a lot of footage I've got on Facebook and stuff like that, and, and relocating problem lines out of conflict areas with humans as well. So you must have an insane amount of stories. <laughs> Yeah, I do, and really cool ones. The ones that the ones I'm most proud of. Other than being a father, they are my proud, my most proud moments. I tell them with almost a tear in my eye because I really wish that you know I'd found that sooner and done more of it because it was a beautiful experience to have to be able to save an animal like that. You know, the truth is, not long after you, you weren't saving them for long a lot of the time, but I enjoyed it. It plugged into all those parts of me that sang. You know, what do you think was uh, maybe your most memorable experience from when you were taking care of this situation when you're working on that? Oh man, there was there's a a line or there was a group of lines in a place called Lake Kariba in Zimbabwe. It's a beautiful holiday destination for the white community over there. House boats and incredible fishing. Um, we got called for a line that was killing dogs. Now, once the line starts killing dogs in a in a built up area next thing is going to be a child you're almost certain of it by accident purely because a child will come around the corner lions will um panic attack they may not even eat it but they'll break the neck and then they'll bolt which means that every line in that vicinity is going to be destroyed they'll shoot everything so sounds so like went, every other cat yeah exactly it is this lion is a big big domestic cat so yeah. um or a domestic cat is a little line which is yeah. why you want to look at it um <laughs> so we went up there to go find out what it was we spent a couple of days tracking we found what we thought was a big female. We hung a, a big bait in a tree and we got used little camera traps, you know, like they use in hunting, which take pictures when the infrared lines broke. We could see it was a female, big female. So we set up traps. I set up traps first. She wouldn't come into them. So then we set up another bait and we lured onto it and then we darted her. Um, and the idea was to relocate her 75, 80 k's away up into the hills, as far away from people as possible. Um, we nicknamed her Athena. She's probably one of the most beautiful lionesses I've ever seen and the healthiest for eating dogs. She's just incredibly healthy, beautiful. <laughs> um, the problem was as we, as we were standing over her, we started to hear this loud purring and squealing noise. She had a baby. Um, she had a youngster. He wasn't a baby, but when he saw his mother in that state, he reverted back to almost kitten state, the noises he was making. But we couldn't get him to come in. He was probably at that point about two years old, 18 months. So still with mum, still learning to hunt. So we spent the next 24 hours trying to lure him into his mum so we could take him with. Because it was it was one of those most heartbreaking exercises, sitting up, not sleeping nonstop, bait, put her in the cages, the traps I'd set up, and lured him in and he'd come in, but we couldn't dart him. It just was too elusive. So after all that, we had to leave him, which was sad because a young male lion in an area like that, his chances were not yeah, great. zero. But you have to draw the line at some point. The money's not there to continue to continue sitting there forever. Yeah. So we move her successfully, beautiful release, and about a year later we get a call. There's a, a growling coming from a bush right near where they uh, she'd been killing dogs. So long, the, the sort of the story is we go back, we get into this bush, and there's beautiful – this video is on my Facebook, and if you watch anything I've ever shot, this made it to news channels all over the world – is of us, it was her son. He was hunting along this riverbed and he'd get caught, got caught up in a wild bushmeat snare. So for a little diker or a little antelope species. Yeah. And so what had happened was he got caught in it and we had to dart him, but the locals came in and there were like a thousand, 2000 locals screaming and the drugs we used to immobilize a line. Don't knock it out completely. And there's a moment in that footage where this thing sits bolt upright 
and looks me dead in the eye. And I don't know if it's in the final edit, but I fall back and literally tumble backwards and roll out this bush. Because, I mean, it doesn't matter that he's immobilised, right? There's mm-hmm. a line and he growls that yeah. far from your face. Yeah, and so then we had to try and knock him out again and you wake up and knock him out again. And eventually we won and we removed the snare at about 90 k's an hour with locals chasing us. They were all smashed. I hammered drunk <laughs> um, trying to cut this thing off. And then, yeah, we re-released him and then worked on a hyena like an hour later. Like that was my – I loved that. I love those two lines were like the epitome of my work. I love doing it. What do you use for bait for lions? <laughs> like just um, zebras? Well, it depends. Yeah, it depends on the area. So if national parks are around and depending on what species are in abundance, sometimes you'll use game like hippo. Mm. Hippo are in place proportions in many parts. Yeah, and and hippo are just they're a horrible animal. Not that I condone shooting <laughs> anything anymore, but if I had a choice of any animal on the planet, you know those. And I don't like rhino very much. They're angry, angry animals too. Not that I would shoot one for bait, but you just go to a butcher and buy a, a hind leg off cattle. A lot of cattle in Africa. Yeah. So do you? You're not doing that now, then, right? No, 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 no. I mean, after prison, they deported me at so some point. How, how so, did you go uh, from saving these animals to prison? Well, conservation doesn't pay anything. You know, it's pretty yeah. much a labor of love. You get like a thousand US a month, and you, you use a lot of that sometimes in getting to and from operations. And I was an altruistic, you know, crusader. So if I was ever offered or paid more money, I would put it back into my work. But I had mm-hmm. kids, and, you know, my kids are now growing. And I, so I went farming. That's where the farming story came in. Farming's lucrative. I'd never seen a farm, really. I'd walked on one, but I'd never farmed. I'm not properly, you know, small-scale projects, you know, backyard, teaching Africans how to produce vegetables themselves. But this was 240,000 chickens over three locations. So I did. I did that. And the problem was I took my crusader mentality to the farm and I stopped corruption. I stopped theft. I went to war with this idea that Africa has a, a really terrible mentality of acceptable loss. Oh, you just got to accept that people steal, you know. What I did was looked after people better so they didn't need to. And mm-hmm. I got rid of the people who were literally in a caught up in a cycle of we steal because we can. Yeah, and I broke up the caste system. So I didn't care where you were from in the country, you were equal. I did all this to prove, <laughs> I was trying to prove to Zimbabwe as it was starting to reemerge in the world that there was hope for a non-corrupt future. Mm-hmm. And the corruption, this, this, this endemic, this horrible disease was a destructive force. And I, I won. I produced that. And I had an incredible farm. Within a few months, I was, I was this farm was $2 million in debt. In, you know, two months, I'd made 280 grand US net profit, you know. Like, I, it was just incredible. And everyone was going, what the hell? People were flying up to see me farming in chicken houses made of mud bricks, producing the same weights that they were in Australia. People mm-hmm. going, what the hell are you doing? And I, again, I don't know, God, I was just being <laughs> me. It worked. But I was stepping on a lot of toes. Yep. Yeah, a lot of toes. The politicians who were being paid. Yeah, they don't like that. Being paid anymore. <laughs> and I was, again, just this dumbass arrogance of don't care. What are you going to do? Shoot me? And Zimbabwe, we have to remember, it's not like the bulk of Africa. It's run by Shoshona tribe. Shoshona tribe are very peaceful people. So their aggression is not nothing compared to most parts of Africa. So when they pulled a gun on you most of the time, it wasn't loaded. And I knew that. So I would field strip the thing in front of them and throw it on the floor and say, next time, come back with bullets. You know, there was this sort of cat and mouse game. But, yeah, eventually those people that I crossed that were underneath me, they rose. African politics overnight can change and it changed. And eventually they decided to come gunning for me. I was a foreigner. I'd upset way too many people. I wouldn't get my <laughs> mouth shut. 
Um, and so they decided to try and get rid of me. And the first time they tried, I refused. So they tried to beat that out of me. That failed. So they booked me and stuck me in prison. That didn't work. So I bribed my way out of prison, as, as only you can in Africa, where the people who put you in will then accept the money to let you out. <laughs> so I bribed my way out. And then I went to court for 10 months and bribed the whole way that t- 10 months. Bribed, bribed, bribed the magistrate, bribed judges, bribed public prosecutors, just bribed everybody so that I could leave and just be a dad. The deal was I will shut my mouth, no more conservation, no more politics. I just need to be a dad. I've now got a son who's 18 months old. I don't care about any of it. I'm sorry, you know, completely. The problem was my lawyer was not the person I thought he was. Well, I had a feeling. He set me up. So my day of sentencing, I was supposed to walk free with a series of fines and go quietly off into the, you know, the sunset. Problem was he, he hadn't been paying all the bribes I'd been giving him money for. So I went from going home to my kids to going back down into the cells again and back into big boy prison again. Yeah. This time I was there were two white guys in a population of six thousand in the prison. First time was I, I was the only one. But um and then by the by the time I left there was a third guy who'd come in as well. So three white guys in a which is an interesting experience. How, How long, long did you did spend you in up- prison? Yeah. <laughs> not, not too long. First time I was only in there for just shy of a month and second time, again, probably just over three weeks before I took a plea deal. They basically wanted me out the country. So even though they were threatening me with 10 years and they could have done that, they were prepared to let me go if I left the country. That was the ultimate goal for them. So unbeknownst to me and not really with my permission, the mother of my kids paid a chunk of money to who it was and then I was told, you're going to be deported, Mr. Young. My kids... Didn't know. To this day, still don't know. I went to prison. They were told. I was told on pain of death and not to be told. I didn't want them coming. So the problem with that was I got deported without saying goodbye to them. But Daddy was there one moment, and then Daddy was in Australia the next. Well, uh, before we get onto that topic, uh, what exactly is an African prison? What's that like? Ooh, okay. Well. These are prisons built by the corporate, you know, the Rhodesian government. So yeah. incredibly well built, incredibly solid. First time in, six by 15 meter cell with about 75 guys in it, with a toilet that doesn't work, that has to be manually emptied. Nice. <laughs> um, so, first few days in, it was an incredibly scary place, but not as scary as you'd think, purely because I think my experiences up to that point allowed me to look into the eyes of people and I knew how to bluff. So I headbutted and smashed a Nigerian my first two hours in. I picked the biggest, ugliest guy I could. You know, the old, you see it in TV shows. Well, it's not untrue. <laughs> look at me. You think I'm going to walk into an African prison and stand toe I had to do something. So, but once I did that, respect, done. And then I clicked up with a big Ethiopian guy and a South Sudanese guy. Two of the most incredible men I've ever met, both political prisoners, still rotting away in that prison with no charge. Ayeli, the Ethiopian, he'll have been in almost eight years. Damn. And John, South Sudanese, he'll be six, six and a half years, no charge. Basically, their governments want them locked up. What were the most of the people in there for? Most of them, um, outside of the foreigners, two charges, theft and rape. Yeah, sadly, Africa still has a hell of a lot of it, and, and Zimbabwe a lot more than anyone ever talks about. It's quite, it's one of those quiet, quiet crimes. And it was, it was. I haven't talked about that before. It was probably the for me. It was the hardest part about being in prison. Once I settled in and I knew where I was and I knew what strength I had, a couple of times I had to be pulled off guys because they were bragging about raping their kids, you know, daughters and stuff. Yeah. Well, not their kids, but they 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 have multiple wives. So the second wife might have a child from another, and so they don't consider that the same. 
you know, and I couldn't handle that stuff, man. I, 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 by the end of the second stint, I was an incredibly angry. People would come up and go, they want a cigarette or they want to talk to you. And I was launching it and I was just, it just, yeah, sad, really sad place, you know, especially when you're surrounded by a lot of political prisoners. Oh, I bet. Because they're just locked up rotting. Now, no was, was it particularly hard being one of the only two white guys there? Um, not as hard as if you were in another country like South Africa or, say, you know, West or East Africa. Man, I probably wouldn't have survived. I'd have been killed very quickly, especially walking around the way I do. You know mm. what I mean? I wouldn't have survived. Being in a Zimbabwean prison, yeah, once it settled in, I was able to bri- a bribery, man. As soon as I got my hand on a carton of cigarettes, that's it. You're God. Yeah, I so- owned the guards. And then in the way I was, is as soon as the white community knew I was in there, I had six people a day just loading me up. I had, you know, so basically I was, uh, prison for me was horrible. I mean, it hasn't been cleaned in 45 years. You get lice-ridden uh, blankets, so you're just being bitten by lice 24 hours a day. There's no water, so you've got to ration how much you can drink. Nights in the second stint were two below zero, you know, freezing with a blanket. So that was all difficult, but the reality of – of prison, when you look at South Africa or some of these other countries, no, I mean, I had it easy. I could get loaf, a loaf of bread a day, which I'd share with these two guys I clicked up with. You know, we, we got peanut butter once, you know, so we we were okay. How did you, you know, get this get stuff in? Boiled. Oh, just through the guards. Yeah? Oh, the guards, the guard, man. More than take bribery. any bribe. Yeah, bribe. They just take, can I have a packet of six, bot? a cap of the cigarettes, boss? Pack of the cigs. Yeah, give them a packet of cigarettes. And then, you know, there was twice there I had a piece of hot chicken delivered to me. They went across the road to a chicken store bought it in for me and then i would share that you know we'd share that between the three of us or if there was anyone in on a short stay that we'd bring in that we'd feed four or five guys with it you know and then i'd smoke i I got garlic bought in ginger chilies so you could try and keep your gut health up because for me as a white guy i don't have the constitution of an african so i stayed healthy when i got out though i got incredibly sick you know, I got pneumonia, then there was fears of tuberculosis and all sorts of shit. Oh, fun. Just, I'm t- I consider myself tough, but, man, the environment physically, yeah, quite challenging. And you're in, and you're in constant state of, you know, I was already in a comp- constant state of hypervigilance when you're in prison. Your head's on a swivel. You know, you're watching, yeah. there's this South African guy who's just come in, he's seen an enemy, next thing you know, there's a bunch of rocks and a sock and he's just KO'd this guy and he's trying to kill him. And then, you know, while that happens behind here, you've got the Ethiopians going to war with the Shona guys. You know, it was just, <laughs> yeah, it was an eye-opener. Um, sadly, a, a situation I found myself at times way too comfortable in, which is a little scary. <laughs> now, you say that prison was like one of your best experiences for, for opening up your mind. Why was that? <laughs> I think because in when you're in an environment like that, it's moments of acceptance. I had I was working with a would you say like a spiritual teacher or a woman who I would call heavily spiritual before I went into prison, and she came and saw me on the second day of the first stint. She's a tiny look, five foot woman, and this prison's just seven foot black guys. And she comes in to visit us, singing. This tiny little woman, she pushed her way through. She looks through the bars at me. She looks across to me, dead night. She goes, "You're exactly where you're meant to be." Hmm. And I was like, "What the fuck are you talking?" <laughs> and then I smiled and realised that my hypervigilance and my subconscious driver of the bus had been constantly manifesting and creating this shit. And and I'd split with the mother and my kids about eight months before. We were still co-parenting and very good friends, but I was carrying an immense amount of guilt. I was punishing myself. This was the ultimate punishment that I'd served up for my life. 
Yeah. And, and, and the technicality that they got me and picked me up for in the first place was because I'd refused to marry the mother of my kids. I wasn't technically meeting their immigration standards, which no one is in Zimbabwe. That's how they extort money from you and you get bribed, but they use it as, and this is what they did and they used. So I lived with that guilt. So it was that, I guess, moment of epiphanies. What are you doing sitting here? Can you hate the world? And you look back on your life and you accept everything. Interesting. Yeah, and and you and you and you and you're being dealt a hand a, a hand um, of humility every second of every day. Humility, humility. I'm sitting in prison. I'm sitting here eating a piece of fresh bread, and there are guys who haven't eaten for three days. You got a guy who's been brought in, and he's just been given a ten year sentence because he stole a cop of uh, a piece of copper electrical wire. Mm. Instant yeah. mandated copper wire in in Africa. Ten years. Why is it so strict Doesn't for matter, copper wire? <laughs> Because they rip down the electrical poles. Oh yeah, yeah, and and it's become such an issue. And the Chinese are the ones buying it. They don't go after them. They get these poor guys who literally have nothing. And so you, you become jailhouse lawyer. So I was sitting there, you know, I was teaching the guards how to fight. You know, I did a lot of close combat fighting. So I had the guards and we built a ring, and I was up there. So this is why for me it was this moment of just. I don't know, understanding the truth of me because we go through these periods of our lives where we get to look at ourselves and we get to face the truth of it or we get to go, nah, don't like that bit, but that, <laughs> that back there. Yep. In prison, I couldn't do that anymore. I had to really bear face with what I was, who got me there, what decisions, me, all on me. Now, could I blame the guards for the horrible treatment the prisoners, the no food. I could have spent my entire time doing that, created this victim. Poor me, poor them, poor, poor, poor. No bullshit, man. That's As a man, that's not the way we're built. When we fall into that victim mentality, we st- we stagnate. We get stuck. So once once you finally got out, um, are you, are, do you have to avoid Africa now? Yeah, so I got back. Um, they sent me, it was September of 2019 now. I flew back here I had no family except a half-brother I hadn't seen in 15 years. So I, I crashed with him and very quickly went, I don't want to be here. I'm African. Yeah. I, I'm not doing this. So I hooked a job up in Mozambique, which is on the eastern border of Zimbabwe. So it's the country next door. Six weeks later, I flew back to Mozambique, started this job, and then proceeded to smuggle myself across the Zimbabwean border <laughs> illegally so I could go and spend Christmas with my kids. So, and yeah, if they caught me, oh, well, you wouldn't be talking to me right now. Right. So- are your kids, and I'm guessing, are uh, uh, natural citizens of Zimbabwe? Yes, they are. Yeah, okay. and and they should be natural citizens of Australia. But their mother has decided, for some reason, she refuses to sign the paperwork to so, make them natural natural citizens of Australia as well. So, how long now? How old are your kids now? Um, almost seven and five. Haven't seen my kids since January 4, 2020. Is that something that's a constant battle, or are you still trying to figure it's out a con- way it's, to? It's um, it's grief. I, I couldn't put my finger on what the word was for a long time. Everyone said sadness. You'd feel moments of depression, and that all made some sense. And then someone said, no, dude, you're grieving. And I'm like, what do you mean? You're dying every day. You know, it's, like, it's like someone's dying in your life every day. And I was like, fuck, dude, that makes sense because I'd be all right and functioning. I met this beautiful woman and everything, and then I would just come to the office and just cry, man, like not cry like sad, man. It was horrifically from the, from the gut. Um, and I found myself being crippled more and more more and more because I kept pretending that it was okay, it was okay, it was okay. I wasn't doing anything about it. And it got worse and worse until I got to the point where I said, you've got to start working your own tools on this stuff, Aaron, because this ain't going away. What I found for me with grief is the best thing I can do is help others. 
So everything else in my life I can come to terms with and I teach it very, very well. And I'm very good at helping people overcome their own adversity or being better than they already are if they want to be performance orientated. But with the grief side of it, I found that giving is my salve, my medicine. That's a lot of people. Yeah, it is. That helps me with my grief because it also in some way connects me with the decency of who I am as a man and my children know who I am because my biggest feeling of loss with them is that I'm a kick-ass father. It's probably my greatest gift and that they needed that. Their mum, speaking, she likes to drink. Um, I wanted my kids to have the alternative. I can't take, make my kids not drink. That's not, not my business. They may want to smoke weed and play guitar, but I wanted to be the alternative because that's all we do with children is offer them exposure to different things. And if, we, if she wants to be a, have a drink, that's fine. But I wanted to be the alternative there so that if they grew up going, you know, I don't actually like this drinking thing for social fun. I'd actually like not to do that. Then they had the choice. And, and also I'm incredibly, you know, the emotional maturity. I wanted my kids to have all that so that when they got older, they wouldn't need a psych or a counsellor or a coach or a, you know what I mean? So they could face the world wholly accepting of who they were, which is something that took me, as we know, a long, long, long fucking time to find. That's all I wanted for them was just to have that sense of peace. Now, are you still also able to contact them or you? Yeah, I, I've, I send them, I send them video. They wake up every morning to a video from me. I think I've missed maybe four days. And if I miss that, I send voice notes all day using WhatsApp, the messenger service. The problem is their mother is becoming increasingly, increasingly distant. Um, obviously COVID's hammering people over there and she just refuses to discuss the idea of them coming here. And so that's created a massive amount of tension and, you know, at times a lot of anger from me because it seems absurd. Um, but we talked about perspective and mm-hmm. funny how we started with us with a conversation and yep. we've ended here that I had to really come to terms with the idea that she's not Australian. Yeah. There's no one here for her except me. And I've got a new partner. We've just had a baby. Mm. I've just had this miracle child into my life. She's scared shitless of coming here. She thinks I'm going to, which is silly because she knows who I am. I would never abandon that woman. Never, ever. But in her mind, her perspective of life, that's what could happen is she'll have no friends. So she's fear. Fear is driving her thought process. And so I can't be, I can be angry at her. What am I going to do? I'm going to feed the fear process that she's stuck in. So I've got to come back and actually say, as much as it hurts me, I'm going to be patient with her, be kind. I don't fund the lifestyle back there anymore. That's the one, one line I did draw. But I, cannot be, I can't be angry with her. And I just pray, you know, I, pray, I don't pray. I'm not a religious man. I connect with my kids in my meditations that I do just to know that I'm here. And, you know, if when I'm lucky once a week, once every couple of weeks, I get a call from them. And it's just, that's my, that's the beauty. They're the it's moment. just saving grace. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Because it's, um, it allows me to see them and for them to see me. You know, my son's very young, hey, to lose his father. And when I do get messages from him, it's very often, Daddy, when are you coming home? Yeah. You know, he, he suffered probably the most because when I left January 4, 2020, he grabbed hold of me and I don't know what was wrong. They thought I was going back to Mozambique. They didn't know anything. And this kid, my son, Liam, he wouldn't let go. And he screamed. It had took two adults to pull him off me. I think that even though in this silent me leaving, they knew this is the thing about kids is they're feeling. Crazy. Oh, yeah, they know. Yeah. They knew underneath that I wasn't probably coming back or that something was going Mm. right and for a little boy to have to uh, for me i see that as a really big deal and that's why it hurts me that i can't fix this and get them here oh yeah that's a heartbreaking situation yeah it it is heartbreaking but it's it's fuel 
I use yeah. it for fuel. I use it to help fathers here be better dads, you know, not to take their kids for granted, to spend more time connecting with them really simply, not in, you know, big fancy connection like a big hippie word. And they just really simply, yeah. you know, connecting with their kids. Yeah, that's actually something that, that's something Andy and I are big on because we both have kids and we've actually done an episode specifically on being a father. I was just thinking and, about that. Yeah, this, this reminded me of that episode because it is, especially if you, you know, if you really value being a dad, it's, it's, that's the kind of connection that you really need to work on. It's not, not the big gestures. It's really connecting with your kids as a person. So they yeah, understand who you are and you know who they are. Yeah. And, and if we want to change the world, if we want to start to see a better world, the greatest thing we can do is be better parents. Yeah, absolutely. Because any, any life changing moments in this world are going to come generationally. There's nothing any of us can do. There's no president or anyone religious leader who can click our fingers and fix what's going on around us. Mm -hmm. But if we can breed a new generation that are more comfortable with themselves, who are less likely to want to divide and, and, and be on that sort of pointing fingers, and that anger and aggression, well, then the more calm, the more calm the world is, the more this shit that we're facing will start to make more sense to us. Because yeah. it's crazy and it's getting crazier because we want to fight about it. Yeah. It's not gonna, fighting about it doesn't make the crazy any less. It makes it 10 times harder because now we spend more time and energy dividing who's right and who's wrong instead of actually fixing the problem. Like I look at this country and we've been in the grip of this thing now for ages. There's not been one quarantine centre built and not one purpose-built respiratory clinic, right? Now, if this thing was what it was in the beginning, what do you think the first two things you would possibly do was build an – we've got more land than you can poke a stick at here. Build an isolated quarantine facility because we've we've let in 150,000 people. We say we're closed. We're not. Mm -hmm. Our government's been letting people in behind closed door for the whole time. And every time we've had an outbreak, it's happened because – They've let someone in. So if they feel the need to quarantine, build a center and then build respiratory clinics. I think all of it comes down to a, we, we, as a, a world, for the most part, I think New Zealand did pretty good, but as a world, we sucked at seeing where this was going, which we, we, yeah, no, we all should have seen where it was going, right? Yeah, no long-term thinking. It's this political idea of four years, four yeah. years. Man, this isn't a four-year thing. This isn't going away in a term, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. Jerry and I were talking. I don't remember how long ago it was. It was before everything reignited. And some article was talking about the four ways that this could end. And I took the doom and gloom, kind of like, it's just going to keep going. And him and my buddies were like, why would you think that? And it's like, because this is how we are. This is humans. Yeah. Speak of my little one. I'm recording, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> Close the door, dude. All right, take the dog with you. <laughs> Where was I? Yeah, so I, I didn't think that it was going to go quite this bad. Um, to be honest with you, I, I thought that more people would be on board with getting it under control, but way more people than I ever expected think that COVID's not real and the vaccines are a hoax, which is really pushing this out further. Yeah, we've got, and this is that whole division. It's like people feel the need to pick a side yes. instead of actually being able to stop. And this is why I talk about this, stop it and look at the reality. And, you know, this picking a side thing is going to destroy us. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's the picking a side. And this is the funny part of it. It's presented with a problem that is a big problem. We've got solutions, but we're spending so much time. How can you say it's a hoax? Like, see, when you started me, you got you said a hoax. I'm like, I'm going to start up because it's like, 
where it came from and what. I don't care. Who cares if the Chinese made it or didn't make it or someone? I don't give a shit. I really don't. It care doesn't matter at this point. Change what we've got, does it? You know, yeah. it's not right. going to alter where we're at right now. And but, but people are still adamant that it was created or it isn't real, and you can use all these fancy naturopathic techniques or something to get rid of them. Like, no, guys, yeah. I mean, anyway, let's not. That's a completely different. Yeah. that's a different podcast. Back, you can see what happens with that. Back to being the dad thing with uh, that. I one of the things that I was on was. You're not you. You can't be a perfect dad. There's no such thing, right? Because you're you're learning, right? Yeah. Even I'm on my third kid, and I still find times where I'm like, "Hey, jackass, why did you just do that?" Right? You're human. You're gonna deal with things the way they are, and you just you constantly do what you think is the best thing with what you have in hand. And there's so yeah, many people said forget the gold that. Thing. Yeah, but you just saved the gold. So the golden moment is knowing that you made a mistake and being honest about it because this mm-hmm. is what we, we've got generations of people who've grown up thinking you don't admit to your mistakes and you don't apologize. Oh, no, you got it. That's what causes division. And when you can say to your kids, I've probably got that wrong there. Dad cocked mm-hmm. out you. Maybe not use that language. You teach them to be hum- humble and go, it's okay to say sorry. It's okay to make yeah. a mistake. Oh, yeah. Which means they don't spend their lives punishing themselves for their errors. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. that's yeah. what we do up here in our heads. We How much time do we spend doubting, you know, like questioning whether we made the right call. But when we can stop and actually go, I made a mistake, and then you can go to your kids or your partner and say, you know what, I really balls that one up. <laughs> and all of a sudden you deflate that moment into a lesson and everyone go, yeah, you did. And there's a smile. And there's instant natural forgiveness instead of it being this thing that you've got to work and work and work like we do with our parents or we do with our exes or those things where there's all there's no work to it when it becomes a natural instinct. Yeah, that, go, yeah, hands up. I did. Did I cop that? Yeah. That's <laughs> having having a kid was uh, having a kid was a, a turning point for me in that respect because that wasn't something I ever really thought about before until my son was old enough to really question me contradicting myself. Oh yeah. <laughs> and he pointed out and I and the decision I made early on was, well, yeah, you're right. And <laughs> then, you know, I'd have, just like you say, no, no excuse, but to cop to what I had either been wrong about or, uh, said and went back on and it being a dad, especially if you care about being a dad is a very, a very humbling experience, oh, especially if you want to raise your kids to be able to do the right thing. You have to do that in front of them when you make a mistake. Yeah, you do. And, and they're our teachers. And I think this is the thing that we failed to realize is our children are little mirrors. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when there's two parents, they're not always your direct mirror, but their behavior is mirroring. And so what they're trying to do is go have a look at yourself. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and people yell, yelling at yourself, all, all this behavior that you're throwing at them, you're literally throwing back at yourself. And it's still with all these fancy books and all these people studying all this stuff for all these years that telling you how to be a parent, the, the really simple stuff gets lost. Yeah, it does. And that is have a good look at your children's behavior and look for yourself in there. Yeah. And if you can't admit to that and cop to that, well, then you're going to struggle. I'm not going to say you'd be a bad parent because you could be good, but you're going to struggle. Yeah. And when you understand that connection between the two, that mirror, when you do that, man, you grow and the child gets to watch that and the child gets to grow with it. So that's what the, the beauty of, of being a parent is, I believe, supposed to be about, but we've gotten caught up in creating perfect environments with perfect kids, with perfect grades, with perfect yeah. looks, with perfect dress sense. With when none of us are there. 
And the, the word perfect should be struck from the, you know how we're adding words to the dictionary? Mm-hmm. Perfect should be cro- left in there but crossed out. I agree. And, and and the definition should be an archaic belief in something that was never real. It's, no, it's, it's literally bullshit. not possible. You, cannot atta- you can't attain it. The only thing that closely could become called perfect is possibly the laws of nature. Something, you know, that, that we can't refute in that the seasons come and go and that the storm will come. That could be called the perfect storm or whatever. But that's the closest thing we've got. And even that is random as hell and full of chaos. And, you know, so. Uh, the other thing on, on what you're saying, a lot of it, sometimes they might not be seeing it from you. Sometimes it's genetics. Like, I can't tell you how many things I saw that, of my kids where I was like, they haven't seen us do that at all. That's a genetic thing. And mm-hmm. you might have learned in your life how to deal with that thing. And you might have to go back on what you learned and teach your kid that. Like, yeah, yeah well, it's they say crazy. there's genetic memory. Yeah, they say there's oh, a thing called genetic memory. And that is definitely that we pass down traits. And you're right, in that it could be something if we think we've dealt with and it can trigger up and you go, shit, I remember I used to do that. <laughs> uh, and, and, it's, and it's a nice reminder. This is the thing, it can be a nice reminder. And I think this is the difference between parents these days is if you can smile at that behaviour. When you can smile at your child having a complete and utter meltdown, and I mean smile at them, but smile at the situation and then actually step into that place, sit down in their world and let them throw their fists or scream and spit and call you the worst parent and sit there (laughs) calmly and peacefully and learn. But in their world, not from up where we live, and this is the biggest thing I teach parents when I do this, is you get down into their world. Children can't step up to where we are. It's just not physically possible. So it's, it's on us to get down into theirs because when we give them that respect, you watch how quickly we diffuse and how quickly we connect with the pain, the misunderstanding. They could be having a meltdown because you said no to an ice cream and what you soon realise is that earlier in the day you wrested control back from them because you were entitled to, but mm-hmm. the way you did it because you were in a hurry might have been too quick and that's what's caused this. But we're focusing on the ice cream where he's just trying to take back control. Yeah, yeah, that's a good and point. So, and, and we only get that when we come down into their world. We can't get that standing above them. That's that's that dictator. When we sit down on our asses and we look at them, and it's hard, man. You know, my my oh, stepson, yeah. he's black. He black eyed me a couple of times when I first first met him. When he would have his meltdowns, he throw fists like he'll have a good right jab when he gets older. <laughs> and but that my aim was to stay down in his world, let him throw. Him. And now, whenever he gets upset, the first thing he does is says, "Can I have a hug?" Mm. I talk to you and I didn't have to teach him much. I did. This wasn't like I had to dictate to him and tell him you have to do this. I was just present in his world, which earned his respect from that little boy's perspective. Yeah. Well, his world. A, a perfect example of something just like that with me and my son was that, uh, you know, kids are really good at making bad choices. And a lot of times there's no real reason for it. And, uh, the, the biggest excuse that I heard from him when I'd say, why did you do that? Is he would say, I don't know. And I used to get really mad about it until I remembered, you know, I used to say the same thing when I was his age and I really didn't know. So he probably has no idea why he made that horrible decision. So I changed my approach after that. And when he said, you know, wh- if I said to him, why did you do that? And he said, I don't know. I would, my approach became, okay, well, Let's let's talk about why it happened and think about what happened when you did that. Mm -hmm. It was a bad choice instead of getting mad that he didn't didn't know, because I put myself in the position that he was in where, okay, I can understand he really doesn't know why he did that. It was impulsive. Kids are really good about that. They live in the moment. See, yeah. what we do as adults is we live in the past 
which is depression, and we live in the future, which is anxiety. So we're yeah. living in this constant assessment phase. We're always assessing. Yeah, children don't assess shit. <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> if the carrots da- if the carrots dangled, the kid nine times out of ten, depending on their personality type, because some won't, will grab it. Yeah. You know, that is just the nature. And we forget that as adults because we look at it with that assessment and go, why didn't you assess that? You know, yes. surely you looked at that. And it's like, well, hang on, man. This kid was, you know, picking his nose three seconds before and wiping <laughs> on the wall. And now we're asking him, you know, why why did he hit his sister? And it was because, he, you know, his sister pulled a face at him and yep. his, his emotions came up quicker than he can grab them because yeah. he's an emotional feeling little being. He's not a thinker. Yeah. Just, he doesn't have that. That's We help him develop that. That how, how we teach him to understand. So when you feel anger, son, breathe. Oh, shit. And say, I feel angry. I'm not happy you did that. And you can show your anger, but did you never raise a hand? You know what I mean? And this is uh, teaching them to respond versus react to mm. what's going on. I fear I like the it. teenage years. Especially <laughs> <laughs> if you've got a daughter. Eh? Uh, boy, girl, boy, I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah, I've got one of each. And uh, they're both they're both the people that take the carrot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's an interesting thing. I haven't got there yet. I'm looking forward to it. Um, oh, it'll be a blast said, look, and a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this is the thing is I think that what it is is it's another round of learning more about yourself because if I yeah. think of myself in my teen years, you know, we, th- we I think what happens those early years, we think, oh, this is rough, and then we learn and we go, oh, cool, I got this. I'm a good dad. And then the teen years are like, you ain't got shit, son. Nope. <laughs> you're going back. You're going back and you're going to learn. But then what it is is that's, that's the opportunity of life to actually teach you even more. And then, you know, hopefully you learn to be an incredible grandfather because those teen years and how we respond to them are the defining moment in their life, really. The formative years are incredible foundation building to give them the skills, integrity, morals. But then in their teen years, that's where we see the T-junctions, mm-hmm. drugs left, no drugs. You know, that's where the bigger decisions start coming about. And as much as the foundation is important, how we react to the first boyfriend, girlfriend, first big mistake first car accident, you know what I mean? First theft, whatever it may be, is actually on us. So we blame that. We say on oh, teenagers, they're responsible. No, bullshit, they are not, man. They're not just yet, you know. That we're, we're supposed to be there and be that comfort and nurture as long as we physically can. At the whole time, obviously being that disciplinarian or that person that challenges them so they understand life isn't a breeze, but we've still got to maintain that comfort for them. They've got to have a safe place. It's a fine line, though, because, I mean, you, I, I sit there and I, I'll go, yeah, all right, look at what you did when or what I did when I was a teenager. Like, they're going to be pulling that same exact shit maybe with a little bit different style to it, but they're going to be pulling the same <laughs> shit. It's going to drive me yeah. nuts. And how you react, if you buck it, you know, if you go, if you hammer down on them, they're going to buck hard. And then you're just going oh, yeah. in the opposite direction. Yeah. And then if you go too soft on them, they'll basically still run wide. It's finding that balance basically between the two and it exists, but it comes back to you. And this is the thing is as parents, we need to realize that especially in those teen years, our ability to remain calm and peaceful is the ultimate goal. Because if we go and we do hammer down or we give up entirely, well, we know what the potential results are there. I think that uh, that's a perfect thought to leave that off on. (laughs) And uh, so I want to thank you for being on the show because this is uh, a fantastic conversation. Well, thank you for the opportunity, man. I, I love the opportunity to tell my story. And like I said, when I get into a conversation like this, where at the end of it, I feel really at ease. Like I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, did I say something? You know, because everyone's yeah. got that. Did I? Did, 
I don't have that. So which means it's just the beauty of this. I'm not a fan of technology at times, but when I get the opportunity to do this and you're on the other side of the bloody world. Yeah. That's our favorite part this about is, this. Yeah. And this is digital community. And I've been saying this to guys that I'm big on community building on this idea of, of reinforcing community leaders instead of politicians and all that shit. And then someone said, you know, there's a digital community now. We've got this ability to create moments like this where we can inspire people. It doesn't matter where you are. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think you're seeing that there's a the digital community of people who are like-minded who are not going for like the BS reasons. Like they're looking mm-hmm. for people who are, you know, good-natured and want to be helpful to each other. You're starting to see that build. Yeah, yeah definitely. Because and we need it. And this is if technology gets used more for it, well then I'm incredibly grateful for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. We need to see more conversations. The more someone can quietly in their car listen to a conversation like this and think about his parenting style or go home and talk to his partner a little differently, then we're starting to reach a point where we can do incredible things with the world. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely, talk, man. And men don't talk. I mean, this is the thing. Generationally gone past this wasn't happening. Yep. And when it did, it was beer and football, whatever, you know, yeah. NASCAR or it was really rugby league. Yeah, it was, whereas now a guy doesn't have to worry about talking about these things because he can jump in his car, listen to stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he can breathe easy and go, I can feel shit. It's all right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, you're not the, the only person thinking about it. Yeah. More feeling that. And that is the biggest thing that people forget is that. Oh, all the time. They feel they're, I'm alone. I'm alone. I'm the only one. And that feeds the victim. Mm-hmm. Or me, I'm the only one. Bullshit, man. There's another billion guys out there right in this moment feeling exactly the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Or girls. <laughs> well, um, uh, speak, speaking of uh, technology, where can our audience uh, find you if right they want to find out going, more Jerry. about your story? <laughs> I know. Yeah, we're, we're on the yeah. same wavelength. <laughs> yeah, cool. So my, my business, my company, whatever you want to call it, is Catalyst Coaching. Okay. Um, so on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or you can look under Aaron Young catalyst you'll find me somewhere if you're meant to find me you'll find me <laughs> i don't do a website I, I look i don't do the self-promotion thing very well it's something that i'm starting to actually change and get into because you know i've got a gift and i should be charging for it instead of giving away everything free <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you'll find you'll find me you'll find my content my perspective online there awesome man it's been a great conversation i really enjoyed it <laughs> so did i Sweet. thanks for being on thanks guys i appreciate it that was some crazy shit. Uh, so as we said at the beginning, Aaron Young, he's a madman. Yeah, and he is. That was for some pretty crazy stories. I'm going to be straight with you, Chris. That's what I think. I, dude, I just love that he just kind of, I mean, he, to me, he rolled with it, right? Yeah. Wherever he, he was, he everything. was just doing, I mean, he stayed true to himself. Yeah, he made, he made the most of wherever he was. And it's just, you know, he made, he made political change. Went to jail for it. Almost got killed. It's it's interesting. I mean, it's crazy shit. That's fascinating. I mean, it, to Most me, they, there's got to be so much more to those stories. So, oh, without I mean, a doubt. You know, it's got to be yeah. even more interesting than what we've heard. Yeah, really, how do you sum up uh, African prison in a one or two hour episode? Uh, which, realistically, I think we might have talked about it for maybe 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, we could definitely go deeper in that. But I wanted to hear like his overall situation oh, absolutely. i definitely let us you guys let us know if you want to have him back and go into more detail on something because we are happy to keep talking to him which on that note when this airs we will have patreon up that's and right. on our patreon we're gonna have stuff on who you guys if you guys want to vote to have people back on we'll have that mm-hmm. on there um, we're gonna have things like behind the scenes video and as well as episodes that no one's ever heard before from one crazy motherfucker <laughs> 
<laughs> and on top of that, coming back soon by popular demand, uh, we are going to introduce, I think the plan, Grizz, is one episode a month. That's a, a research topic, kind of yep. like when the show first started. So we'll have continue to have our uh, wild guests, but then we'll have one episode a month where it's just me and Grizz covering a topic that one of us or both of us had to do some research on. <clears throat> and the one we have coming up for you in the near future is Havana Syndrome. Which I am clueless about. But it now sounds it's all me. I love this one. It's, it's crazy shit, but you guys are going to find out about it soon. Thank you again for listening to Beautiful Bastards. New episodes every Monday. Remember to like and subscribe. That's a lovely accent you have there. New Jersey? Austria. Well, let's put another shrimp on the barbie. <laughs>